0: Welcome to episode two of the Princeton Podcast with Mayor Mark Frieda. In this episode, Mark sat down with Jeff Grosser, Princeton's Municipal Health Officer, to discuss the current state of affairs regarding COVID-19 issues and events here in Princeton. They also discussed Jeff's background, his daily health department duties, and the impact of COVID-19 on Princeton's public school activities. So without further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, Jeff Grosser, for Episode 2 of the Princeton Podcast. Welcome, Jeff Grosser. Thank you. I guess people might wonder, what, what, do, you, what do
1: you actually do every day? What, what does a health officer do? And some jobs might be like this,
2: and I don't know if this is cliche, but the best part about what I do every day is that every day is different. And every day is a different need for the community. And that sounds ambiguous because public health can be ambiguous. Um, obviously, our job right now with the pandemic is to identify new cases, contain any exposures, contact trace via, you know, individuals that we identify as, as contacts and exposure points, and then try to suppress the disease. That's the that's the piece of public health I think people kind of know about at this point. Prior to the pandemic, most individuals would say, Oh, well, the health department inspects the restaurants. Yes, we inspect the restaurants, we have inspectors that inspect the restaurants to make sure the food is safe, and everything is uh, where it needs to be from a sanitary perspective. But we had always performed communicable disease investigations. You know, before the pandemic, uh, we would have cases of measles and mumps and vaccine breakthrough. It happened. And we have a team of communicable disease investigators or public health nurses, we call them, that investigate the disease. As the health officer, my job is to essentially be the coach. And I organize the efforts of the health department. We have health educators that educate the community on different benefits of their health if they know certain things, just like teachers. Um, we have a vital statistics department that is responsible for birth, death, and marriage certificates. That's where all those fund documents come from. Um, Princeton has a storied public health department um, with the oldest board of health, one of the oldest board of healths in the state that was created in 1880. Um, so it's just got a robust history. And as the health officer, I'm proud that uh, we have a great team there. So I essentially lead that team for all efforts, public health coming out of the town. Yeah, it's actually quite a
1: quite a bit. So it's it's nice to to actually hear all that's involved in that.
2: And sometimes I probably forgot a few things. We also investigate complaints, you know, poison ivy, uh, high grass, trash complaints, odors, things like that. Um, we try to be the department that, when complaints don't have a home, we try to take them in and then handle them. Um, because as we're beginning to all be aware, everything comes back to
1: to public health. Yeah. So I guess the one thing that obviously. Is on everyone's mind a lot these days is COVID? um the delta variant has come out things have changed as far as what's going on so what what do you what trends do you see happening now and, and where do you think we're headed now we're getting towards the end of september uh middle of september end of september where do you think we're going over the next month or so what any kind of predictions or thoughts on
2: yeah. So as a health officer, we we do a lot of forecasting and predicting, and we try to follow um, similar to other positions. You try to follow the experts in the field and what they're saying. Um, the scary part is that that we just don't know. We don't know in terms of you know what other variants might arise. Um, the good news is we have a pretty sophisticated surveillance system to identify new variants now, um, but we certainly know right now Delta is is Making up pretty much every case that we see right? you know over ninety nine percent in New Jersey right now um, just two three months ago, and you're aware of this too mayors that we are in a place where we were seeing no new cases you know our our, our seven day and 14 day moving average were uh, basically bottomed out alpha variant we just we determined we've kind of figured out how to handle it, how to avoid transmission. the vaccines were at that time, you know everybody felt like they were so effective that we could move on as, as we know it. So what's changed? Well, it changed quickly is the, how quickly a variant can spread amongst the community. Um, but what we do know, and we're, you know, we're learning more about is vaccine effectiveness does not mean, um, you know, when we have vaccine breakthrough cases, it does not mean the vaccine is not working. It just means that individuals are becoming infected due to some other variable. Um, viruses burn through communities, they burn through populations the way they want to. And there's not always a way to predict that. What you can do is, you know, without having the virus burn through places, you have to make sure that whoever's susceptible is protected. And, you know, we've heard a lot about things like herd immunity, where you get the population vaccinated or protected, and there you go. Um, We hear a lot about the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, where once the virus went through the population, and there was no one else left to infect. Eventually, you know, the virus will stop infecting people. With COVID, I think what we're going to learn is that we're going to start identifying, as we've spoken about a little bit, um, you know, through different forums, we're going to start to identify the risks that we're willing to take. And if we get to a point where individuals are protected in a way where we're not going to see those severe cases of COVID, that'll be probably those first major steps back to to some sense of normalcy. Um, it's not a bad thing that people have learned how to you know, contain disease. It's a, it's a good thing. The bad thing is that we need to get to that point in a civilized fashion where there's less concern over, you know, is this misinformation or not? We need to make sure, do we actually know what's happening? And I think with the vaccines, the more we know about what's happening with them, especially with the booster shots coming up you know, that are supposed to be live September 20th, um, we're all learning as this process moves on. And I think at this point, what we can say about Delta is we, sh- we are starting to see a plateau in other parts of the country. And through this pandemic, we've seen Princeton, for some reason, we lag, be- be- we lag a little bit when it comes to these, these trends that are happening. And right now, we're kind of at the tail end of that. And we are starting to see a minor plateauing. So I'm hoping that that's going to continue. The best thing we can do is continue to evaluate and, sur- and provide surveillance on other new variants that are coming up and making sure that the, the resources, the necessary resources are still being provided to public health. Once this is all said and done, we don't forget about everything that's happened in the last two years, but we remember how to stay prepared and where we got to and how we got out of this thing. So that's, that's the best way to, to stay prepared moving ahead.
1: Looking at the reports, which are excellent, I might, might add, that you put out regularly to the governing body and that we put in the newsletters we send to everyone throughout the town, it seems the vaccination rates for Princeton residents. Are really high. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, I mean, Princeton residents through this pandemic, I have to really take my hat off to them. Between um, you know their emails of support to their interpretation of guidance that actually will help us, you know, provide more protective layers for the community. We look at guidance twice. It doesn't matter if it's from the CDC or the Department of Health. We have experts in this community that speak on a lot of these subject matters. So we utilize. Um, you know, their guidance and their input that we receive uh, whenever we look at new guidance and whenever we think about, you know, new protocols for the town. But yeah, as a, as a whole, you're right, Mary, the, uh, the rate, vaccination rate for Princeton has been pretty, pretty stellar. Um, the, uh, the 65 and older population, we're almost at 100%. Uh, our 18 and over population, we're, we're just above 80%, 80% right now. Um, so that last 20%, you know, we're still in the community trying to get out to them. Uh, a lot of the uh, convincing of that 20% is coming from friends and family. We do our best to educate, but at the end of the day, uh, they're going to determine when the right time for them is to get a vaccine, typically from a loved one that is you know, maybe either susceptible to it or just gets through to them one day. Uh, but nonetheless, we're trying to stay present in the community. So when people are ready, they have it. And you know, as you mentioned, we're, we're still continuing on with the booster and the third dose conversation
1: and being prepared for that next week. So another question I think a lot of people will be interested in is, how is this school year different for students and families versus this time last year?
2: Yeah, I mean, this has been a tremendously uh, difficult week of uh, you know, school starting since school started last week. And I, give a lot of, um, I have a lot of empathy for parents and grandparents and young kids that are concerned and scared. Um, because the last population here that we're looking to, to get vaccinated once the vaccine's approved is going to be the zero to really 11 year old range, um, which are really our are, are elementary school age children. And, uh, we know they're susceptible to so many other health outcomes that this is a concern and parents, I think, you know, and, and myself included as a parent, you feel guilty that you've gotten the vaccine and they haven't yet. And that, uh, schools are back in person. So there's a lot of concerns there, and, and we've been hearing those concerns from the community. Um, Princeton Public School District, our private schools, charter school, have done a remarkable job seeing where we were in June and July with very few cases in the community to this surge of Delta cases in August, where they've pivoted so quickly to change guidance to be more rigorous to start school just four or five weeks later. And I think it's important to note, you know, the guidance changes, but it's like a locomotive. Like It takes a while to get that guidance changed because you have to look at the science and determine how is this going to be applied in a real-world setting. Applying protocols within a K-12 school is not an easy feat. So if you change seating charts, requirements of the school day, lunch outside, masks mandatory, no mask breaks inside, snacks have to be outside, extracurriculars are going to require testing. These are huge things that school administrators have to, to, to do. And you know, school administrators are amazing, amazing civic employees, but they're not public health experts. So to also deploy these things, they are really reliant on the medical professionals around us, the Board of Health, the Board of Education, the Health Department. Um, so we've done our best to really try to support the schools. Uh, the New Jersey Department of Health recently has announced a $260 million dollar uh, funding source for screening testing for schools, K-12 schools, particularly for unvaccinated. So our, our elementary schools, some middle schools, uh, high schools that they have unvaccinated students, and then obviously obviously the staff that haven't been vaccinated yet. This will be a game changer which, with regards to disease transmission, because we'll be able to identify cases um, within the schools quickly versus just waiting for positive results as a matter of symptoms. Um, so yeah. I mean, back to your question, I think we are in for some tough weeks ahead with schools and identification of new cases and trying not to disrupt the school year like, we, like, like it was done last year while keeping the kids safe. And I think with the five to 11-year-old uh, vaccine approval on the horizon, hopefully mid-fall, I think we're getting close to a point where some of those concerns are going to be brought back to a, a better sense of reality. Good to hear.
1: How um, how have the roles of the local health departments shifted during the pandemic, and uh, you know what happens after COVID? What what changes are going to still be here or or whatever?
2: So since Princeton's first case back in March of 2020, um, it's really been all hands on deck towards the pandemic response. We had a minor break in the summertime where we got back to, you know, youth camp inspections and restaurant inspections on the regular occurrence. We're still inspecting restaurants, of course, um, but every employee has been asked to contribute somewhat to the pandemic response and even staff outside of our department. Um, So, I mean, the pandemic's changed the responsibilities of staff where staff that were normally just used to, you know, performing restaurant inspections or used to, you know, Giving out birth certificates. Now they're answering calls from concerned residents about COVID protocols and how they're interpreting them, and um, going out to COVID vaccine clinics and providing um, you know consent forms so we can get people enrolled and 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 vaccinated. Um, So it's really been all hands on deck. And again, you know the staff in Princeton at the health department are tremendous assets to the community. They they love what they do. And they'll do anything for the town. And that's the part as as the health officer, as as the leader over there, um, drives me because I see some of the things that people are willing to do outside of their comfort zone. And it gives me the motivation to step outside of my comfort zone with some of these things. And I know that at the end of the day, if any of us, as we've experienced, uh, if any of us get ill, somebody else is there to fill in the void and help out. But the support within the department has been tremendous um, through the pandemic, and I expect it to continue after the pandemic. Um, post-pandemic, I expect changes in public health. There's no doubt. it's going to have to change, and by change and it, I mean the system of public health. Um, you know, we are a local public health department by all senses of the word. You know We have approximately nine full-time employees. Prior to the pandemic, we had four. Uh, we've been fortunate to get resources as a, you know, really as a, a measure of support from both yourself, mayor and council supporting, you know, full time position acquisition of, of a, of a full time nurse. Um, and then obviously the uh, taking on of grant funding sources from the state health department and the CDC um, for other positions that are super needed in all communities. Uh, we were able to hire a, a vulnerable population outreach coordinator uh, COVID generals to assist us with the clinics and those positions have been vital for our response. So after the pandemic, I think what's going to be a major focus of the department is to make sure that we stay relevant when it comes to the needs that we have to make sure that the, the community stays safe and stays prepared for whatever has to come next.
1: One thing I I've noticed over a period of time is the partnerships that the health department has had with the county, with Princeton University, with local businesses, I mean you've been doing clinics all over town at all different times. maybe you could you know share with our listeners all the different opportunities you've taken advantage of to, to get to get out there and give people shots
2: yeah, I mean public health uh, from a definition standpoint, um, I went to an institute called the Northeast Public Health Leadership Institute at, uh, at through the University of Albany, and Dwight Williams is their uh, founder or one of their directors. And he starts off the institute that takes place up in uh, Rensselaerville, New York. And he starts off the institute saying, public health is and leadership are relationships. And I've never forgotten that. it really, They really are relationships. You don't always have great relationships, um, but you have to forge them. And we have a uh, Board of Health uh, Vice Chair, Dr. D. Fernando, who's been instrumental through this pandemic response. And he's always told me, you can't forge relationships in the middle of a disaster. So I try to combine those two quotes from those gentlemen and um, I try to blend them a little bit because I, I, I actually disagree a little bit with Dr. D. Fernando because sometimes actually disasters bring together relationships that would have never been forged before. But I don't know if that's really what he meant. I think what he means is you can't prepare to have a relationship to support one another in a pandemic because everybody's looking out for an emergency, because everybody's looking out for your entity, right? your own self. Why we're so fortunate the health department is our job is to serve everybody. So if you work here, you live here, you run here, you go to school here, we serve you. Um, So we don't care. We'll serve everybody. We've had some tremendous partnerships through this pandemic, and that's another thing. Back to your other question, that's something that we're going to have to make sure it doesn't go away. Because once those partnerships really started to click, it was difficult to get. It, it was difficult to get in our way. Um, the Princeton Senior Resource Center was a fantastic uh, partner to us. I'll, I'll speak about them just because they offered up, um, you know, their primary facility, which is at the Suzanne Patterson Building, right behind Monument Hall. And we utilized uh, that facility to, to vaccinate over 1,000 people. Uh, they opened their doors to us. They, they offered staff. They offered translators. They also did vaccine navigator programs via phone. Um, so they really pushed everything that we needed from a facility perspective and a person perspective for help. Um, but I, I'd probably be remiss to mention that the, the school district actually also offered their nurses. To perform contact tracing because they have knowledge obviously of clinical aspects of the disease and they are, have already done this with their school. So they opened their, you know, their workforce for us too. Um, but even in the early days of the pandemic, when we first started contact tracing, our first outbreak in March 2020, um, the police department gave us their detectives, gave us their detectives. They offered their detectives to perform contact tracing. So we gave them a list of questions and we had them start calling. These 70 or 80 people that we had potentially linked back to one event. Um, So it's a little bit of a combination of not being afraid to ask for help. I've noticed that people like to... They enjoy helping each other for the most part. And in Princeton, I think it's like tenfold. Uh, People want to give their own time. And we see that with a lot of even our boards, commissions, and committees. Individuals offer up their expertise and time, usually without hesitation. And in the pandemic, because so many people were working from home and their daily work life was disrupted, and they had a lot of extra time on their hands, they were offering themselves up, their organizations up to help us out. And um, it's one of those things where you can't be too proud to uh, to ask for help. But at the same time, you have to also be able to determine where that help is going to be best suited um, and not be too concerned over if somebody thinks you should be doing something differently. Try to accept it in a constructive manner even if it doesn't come in like that. That is something that I'll probably take with me after the, after the, um, after the pandemic, because prior to that, there was always a level of, of competitiveness on my end where I would feel like, well, we should be prepared for this. You're not always gonna be prepared and you have to accept help, especially in times you really need it.
1: Right, and I, and I think we could point out the university has helped with Linux. You've you worked with small businesses on parts of Witherspoon Street. You've had clinics at all strange times of the day and night. I mean, I think people would love to hear about yeah, some of
2: those. Yeah, no. I, I again, let me let me preface this, and I apologize. There are there are so many partners that I don't have a piece of paper under me, uh, you know, in front <laughs> of me, and I'm sometimes I'm bad at recollecting um, every single moment of the pandemic, which I don't know if that's on purpose or not. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Princeton University has offered up, you know, Jadwin Gymnasium. I mean, what a f- fantastic. Probably the nicest venue for uh, uh, a vaccination clinic outside of you know MetLife Stadium or something like that. I mean, it's just tremendous. Uh, their staff—they've got a, a just a robust health services department. Um, you know, doctors, nurses that would offer their expertise and guidance. Um, the businesses and the you know the, the Princeton business community through this whole thing um, has been nothing but helpful. Uh, they've been managing and and uh, providing. Organization to get their staff vaccinated and have been supportive over that. Um, they've been present with offering up locations. La Mexicana on Witherspoon Street has offered up their location as a as a, a vaccination spot. It's actually one of our more productive spots in the community where we've just had uh, vaccination clinics that you would think are um, you know block parties. I mean, and I mean that in a really good way. Uh, you know, bringing the community together. And I think what that also opens up is just how much residents trust certain business owners in the community. Um, And utilizing that resource was something that we didn't see coming prior to the pandemic Uh, was just the way into the workforce was through these just, you know, loving, caring owners of businesses that treat their employees like families. Um, Princeton Merchants Association have been, uh, you know, they've been inviting us to their meetings throughout the pandemic to just provide a forum to update businesses because otherwise we'd be reaching out on our own to all these independent groups. So, you know, obviously them as well. Uh, you know, and and there are other people that I know I'm gonna forget in organizations. So again, uh no disrespect there. Uh just I've I'll have to say all encompassing um, you know, Princeton has been so supportive through this and the pandemic. And I can I expect them to continue to be so because we're gonna need them uh hopefully through this last leg of this.
1: Yeah, but it is great to hear how so many different individuals and businesses and groups came together during this and continue to come together. But let's uh, let's shift a little bit. Um, what public health challenges exist in Princeton versus other towns in New Jersey? So, as you mentioned,
2: Mayor, the, the you know the university is just a, a tremendous resource, but it also provides challenges and good challenges, exciting challenges within the field of public health. They have. Um, you know, students and professors that will travel to all ends of the earth. Uh, so we call that travel medicine. And sometimes, you know, there's concerns over exposures in those ends of the earth when they come back to Princeton. Um, so you know, you always have travel medicine and, uh, as we would call them, you know, international diseases that we were concerned about that in other places you wouldn't necessarily even worry about. So there are diseases and. Reportable diseases that we might have to be ha- keep on our radar where other health departments don't necessarily have to worry about that as much uh, as we mentioned earlier with schools we have a number of private schools some are um, you know uh, they have students living on campus so they also contribute to other concerns where there are almost many colleges so Princeton has a number of from an educational perspective uh, a wide array of these educational settings that definitely uh, provide a, a different type of challenge when it comes to different types of type of um, disease intervention, especially communicable disease intervention. Um, there's also a lot of transient population, you know, we have a lot of people that come into Princeton to work. And when you have people working here, but not living here, that raises a concern for us for one main reason, uh, reportable diseases that like COVID-19 uh, are linked to your jurisdiction to where you live. So back to your business discussion, we rely heavily on these businesses that if they know something about a staff member, it really helps us to identify future disease outbreaks when we know of staff that are positive with something in particular. You do rely on those other health departments where those individuals live to perform contact tracing and they ask occupationally, where do you work? You'll get notified by those health departments so you can keep an eye on that particular establishment or reach out to them to see what's going on. Um, But, uh, you know, Princeton just has a lot of individuals that are very, very active from like I said, an occupational perspective. And when you have that, you have a lot of opportunity to bring disease in and out of the community. Uh, So we try to stay ready for that. And it's another reason why uh, our communicable disease portion of the health department is typically pretty busy on any given day with just new updates and things we have to look into. Um, Other challenges that exist in Princeton is that uh, you know, between the educational facilities and the business facilities, um, we have a number of uh, animal life and wildlife concerns uh, that maybe some other towns don't worry about. Princeton is very much a, in my book, even though it's somewhat suburban, it's pretty rural in section. So we hear of a lot of different types of um, wildlife concerns and things like that exist with rabies and different types of zoonotic illnesses that, that we don't always really broadcast because they're very, um, they're kind of concentrated in certain areas of town. Uh, but we do let different communities know when there's different uh, rabies outbreaks and, and positive cases so we can make sure that the, the right information gets out to where it needs to get to. Um, but ultimately, what's great about Princeton is that with all of those challenges uh, come, you know, a lot of, well-versed experts in the field, like I mentioned earlier, that are willing to give up their time and their expertise to try to help you. So when you have this kind of different situations arise, they're willing to be there to, to help out and, and guide you through them.
1: It is amazing all that that your world encompasses and everything that you see. But so with all the different things that happen, is there some favorite part? Is there something that's you know every day you say, "Oh, good, I get to do this," or? It's got to be, yeah,
2: well, I do um, outside of the team that we have at the health department I'm working with that team, which is really just, it's awesome to be part of something that you're, it, you're, putting t- you're putting effort into something that's so much larger than all of us. And you're making an impact because you're part of a team that all has a, a shared vision. Um, that from a professional perspective. But it does come down to really one of the main reasons why I, I fell in love with public service, which is helping people. Um, we have opportunities every day to help residents and help them a lot. There are instances where we might be dealing with the childhood lead poisoning situation. And, uh, you know, doctor diagnoses the child. The case gets turned over to us. And our job is to find the lead and get it out of the house. And, that's our, that's our calling. And we go in there, we find it, we get it abated, and the child can go on and live in a safe place. And there are situations like that where you know you're making a major impact in that child's life. Now, what I'd like to see is hopefully more attention to prevention where that child's not poisoned in the first place. And we could have more surveillance and better monitoring in locations where we know there's older housing stock or different things like that. And we can make a dent before there's a problem. Uh, that's always the goal of prevention, but it's not always easy to sell that because prevention does cost money, um, and resources are limited. So we have to advocate for where we can, you know, make the biggest impact. But ultimately, um, I love improving people's lives from, especially from a health perspective. And when people recognize that, it's fulfilling, and it makes working here all the while. But. The departments here within the municipality, you know, the municipal government here is very much run like a. uh, At times, I'm sure, um, you know, it could probably be argued, but from my perspective, from my vantage point, like a very well-run business, and the departments around the health department, in their departments, their staff, very much are experts in their field, Um, and it's fun to work with those departments on shared visions, different projects. To improve the community um that is just to me it doesn't feel like work and when it doesn't feel like work you know you're you're enjoying it
1: that's great to hear so jeff why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself your background and what led you to become a health officer sure so
2: my background in uh public health started most probably most likely from just my interest in science and math and uh in in Liking those subject matters, you typically look into the biology, the sciences, different types of math, and um, in looking for where I was going to prosper from a professional perspective. And um, reviewing different colleges and universities, um, some of those schools included um, schools that had medical campuses, medical schools that were attached to them. Um, growing up, I always played soccer pretty religiously. Um, I played soccer through through college. Ended up going to college for that. Um, so I was always into fitness and health. So I kind of try, try to tie those things together. And combined with that, uh, my dad was a, a research engineer working with uh, various types of petroleum lubricants for uh, a corporation that had a lot to do with health and safety. And he would always talk to me about you know, protecting yourself from different chemicals and things like that. And it sounds kind of odd uh, as a kid growing up talking to your parents about chemicals, but uh, he did work uh, pretty extensively on some of these types of technologies. Um, and uh, when I pri- probably put all those things together in high school, I started to do the college, college search. And I wanted to go to a school and play soccer. Uh, but I wanted to go somewhere that I knew that if something were to happen to me from an injury perspective, I'd still be happy with that, that school. So during the college search, um, I came across Johns Hopkins University, which has a, a, a good medical school, I'd say. Um, and I wanted to open my, my horizons to see, you know, what would I really be interested in? At this point, I really wasn't certain if it was public health or not. And um, in making an official visit with my father down there, I uh, came across the school of public health, which is actually on the medical campus at Hopkins, and uh, just fell in love with the school, the history. Uh, obviously, I could still play soccer there and start, which was good. <laughs> um, and I uh, went to school there. And just the best part about Hopkins is you're learning from professors that are world renowned experts so to develop a passion in public health was a given for the most part and that's even coming from a, a student athlete that probably could have given a little bit more time and you know in the library but and, not, and off the field nonetheless um, went through four years there uh, really got into population health and um, working to improve populations versus just single people like a doctor would look into to, uh, perhaps and as I was wrapping up my undergraduate career, it was right around uh, the recession, 06, 07, and the job market was absolutely not in good shape. And for public health at that time, we know um, public health is one of those things we don't always think about when it's happening and things are good. You know, If we think about life pre-pandemic, uh, prevention health doesn't always get the bucks, right? Um, so I Got an offer from the head coach of the, uh, the soccer team that uh, he was he wanted to keep me on as a as a grad assistant, and I went ahead and I applied to enter the school of public health at Johns Hopkins University, which I was accepted into, and I entered into the environmental health uh, health sciences division of the school of public health. My interest there again was kind of spurred back to my 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 childhood and just. Hearing about how the environment can impact you, and even from like an occupational perspective, at this time, I was pretty interested in how organizations put so much effort, especially large corporations, so much effort and time into protecting their workers from the things around them. Um, and I guess also on top of that, I, I was a pretty avid fisherman, and uh, I was always in, not impressed, but I guess. Um, almost disappointed in some of the negative things you would see even if you're 80, 90 miles off the coast with regards to how we've impacted our environment in the oceans. And I always felt somewhat responsible for that, and I wanted to help. So uh, when I was accepted into the school public health, my concentration was environmental health. I did a ton of work with uh, epidemiology, uh, biostatistics, population health, um, communicable disease, maternal child health, uh, toxicology and obviously acute health is still a concern <laughs> um but uh and in doing so going through the the school there again you just are working with people that even today through the pandemic i've got connections with just because i learned under them when they were a professor and here they are uh, directing many of our our country's efforts through the pandemic so it's pretty remarkable that it's come full circle like that um so in graduating there, uh, like most new, uh, new graduates do, whether it's graduate students or undergrads, you start looking for jobs. And uh, again, during that time, it was right around the recession. Uh, I was applying for jobs in Baltimore, Maryland, where Hopkins is located. Um, I'm a little bit of a homebody. I love New Jersey. Uh, I wanted to come back home, though. Uh, I love the Jersey Shore, of course, uh, where my family spent some time. And uh, so I kind of started applying everywhere, including locations in New Jersey. Now, at the time, when I wrapped up as a grad assistant, um, I also had the thought of, I love leadership, maybe I'll start going to, to try to become a collegiate soccer coach. So I had some applications out there too. And I think a lot of it changed when I graduated from Hopkins and I started to get some comments back on my applications for some of these public health related jobs. Um, there was a lot of interest in my background from Hopkins in the environmental health section. So I said, "Well, this sounds pretty desirable. I'll go this route." And I was very fortunate to get uh, an email back from the Burlington County Health Department, where uh, I actually went to high school in Burlington County, and I started as an entry-level hazardous materials technician with the Burlington County Health Department uh, back in 2007, 2008. And I, it was a great opportunity because again, it was within my field. It was a great stepping stone to get in there. Uh, The health officer at the time uh kind of brought me under under their wing and i worked up through the ranks took the health officer's examination got my license and uh after seven years there i started applying princeton had an opening um i was fortunate to get an an interview and um princeton was kind of looking to turn the leaf over with the health department and, and start to kind of change course a little bit uh princeton university had just gone through uh their meningitis situation. So there's a lot of things changing, a lot of new, exciting things, scary things, but exciting things. And um, I was fortunate enough to be selected as, the, as the, the health officer for Princeton. So now I've been here uh, seven years. That was in t- 2014. And it's been just exciting
0: ever since.
1: That's great. Jeff Grosser, Princeton Health Officer. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate Thank your you time. Thank you,
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of the Princeton Podcast. Special thanks to our podcast host, Mayor Mark Frieda, and his guest, Jeff Grosser. The Princeton Podcast is produced as a community service by HG Media, providing audio, video, and website design services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.